0: This, this is the Buck, Buck Sexton, Sexton Show. Where the, mission, where the mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence.
1: Russia. One all Make no mistake. American. Great, you're a great American again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show
1: begins.
0: Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton.
1: Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on this Monday Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Hope you all had a great weekend, maybe enjoyed some football, some time with the family. Nice relaxation, a break from the craziness in the world and probably in your own personal lives as well. As we head into this 2020 election cycle of which the impeachment is inextricably interlinked. I want to start today we'll talk about a few different things i want to pick up on some threads that we talked about on thursday and friday in particular we're going to talk about the afghanistan papers maybe the most overlooked critical story that has emerged about not only american national security and foreign policy but also what kind of government we have and whether we're really represented ultimately when there are trillions of dollars in treasure, and all this blood sacrificed, and what have we gotten for it? And I talked about the the link between General Michael Flynn and those Afghanistan papers last week. We'll pick up on that thread today as well with Julie Kelly just a little bit later in the hour. We're also going to, again, look at China, but actually through the lens of Taiwan, a country we don't talk about a lot, but which is actually the front line in the Chinese Communist Party's march first for regional hegemony and then for global dominance and why should we as americans care about that and what should the u.s relationship with taiwan look like and there were recently presidential and broader elections there as well which have not gotten a lot of press in the u.s but are actually quite significant and and good news out of that part of the world so we'll talk with steve yates About that, a little bit later in the show. And then we'll also talk with Margot Cleveland of The Federalist, a senior contributor there, a colleague of mine, who is doing some exceptional work, parsing, going through page by page of the 478 pages or whatever it is of the IG report on FISA abuse, and also looking at potential corruption in the FISA court itself. Huge, vital matters that are not being addressed. People are not going in and doing the journalistic homework that they ought to do, and Margot has a very extensive legal background, looks at this through the eyes of our eyes, the way that we look at these issues, and is doing some vital work on this. We'll talk about that in Hour 3. But I want to start with this being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, a little bit about the politics of this. And I don't believe that national holidays should be politicized, Uh, I think that... Politics should be taken out of all of these major cultural benchmarks, these celebrations that we have. But the left has injected politics into everything. So if we're going to talk about the political aspect of a day like Martin Luther King Day, I would suggest that this should be an anti-identity politics holiday, because that is actually what Martin Luther King Jr. espoused. Certainly in the most famous speech he ever delivered, he talked about colorblindness content of character mattering more than color of skin skin pigmentation that you and i have no control over that what we do have control over is what we contribute to society to our families to our communities what we bring to the table based upon our individual merit and that truly is the basis by which we should be judged not things that are completely out of our control arbitrary by nature Thomas Sowell, the great economist who grew up in Harlem back, I believe, in the 30s or 40s, came up through the ranks of basically militant black nationalism, leftism, had an epiphany and switched and became one of this nation's leading free market economists, written some of the finest books there are on these subjects. And he wrote something back in 2013 on the 50th anniversary of King's I have a dream speech that I think is worth reading at some length because it puts in context how distorted Americans, particularly on the left, have gotten on issues of race, how far away they have traveled from Martin Luther King's ideal, where colorblindness used to be the highest ideal, the virtue that we sought, the principle that we sought. And now what is deemed most virtuous is the opposite. It is let's judge everything explicitly on the basis of what the race is of one person versus another person. That's really identity politics and multiculturalism. What at the end of the day is it really about? Yes, they've come up with this academic veneer to try to rationalize the views that have pervaded our law schools and all of our schools and now all of our cultural institutions since the civil rights era. It's actually about dividing us. It's about dividing us and then conquering us, rubbing the wounds, old wounds, historical wounds for political gain, playing one group. And I hate the term group because we're individuals and we should be judged individually. Pitting groups against each other. And that is totally antithetical to what King argued in that speech. I want to read a little of what Sola said back in 2013 because it's just as relevant today and it's going to remain just as relevant until and unless we thwart the identity politics-obsessed, multiculturalist-focused march and get back to judging people by who they are, caring most about the smallest minority, the minority of one, the individual, under assault by this group ideology of identity politics, which of course is just a ruse, a guise to cover their leftism. It's using the veneer of being virtuous because you're supporting the oppressed as a means of justifying tyrannical collectivism where the individual is destroyed. The smallest minority is destroyed. Here's a little of what Sowell wrote. Judging individuals by their individual character is at the opposite pole from judging how groups are statistically represented among employees, college students, or political figures. Yet many, if not most, of those who celebrate the I have a dream speech today promote the directly opposite approach of group preferences, especially those based on skin color. He goes on. What was historic about King's speech was not only what was said, but how powerfully its message resonated among Americans of that time across the spectrum of race, ideology and politics a higher percentage of Republicans than Democrats voted in Congress for both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. To say that was a hopeful time would be an understatement. To say that many of those hopes have since been disappointed would also be an understatement. There's been much documented racial progress since 1963, but there's also been much retrogression, of which the disintegration of the black family has been central, especially among those at the bottom of the social pyramid. Many people, especially politicians and activists, want to take credit for the economic and other advancement of blacks, even though a larger proportion of blacks rose out of poverty in the 20 years before 1960 than the 20 years afterwards. And we should add to that that these trends have only gotten worse and that the great society itself, when measured in terms of the racial progress, has really been a flop. But no one wants to take responsibility for the policies and ideologies that led to the breakup of the black family, which had survived centuries of slavery and generations of discrimination. And we can't we cannot downplay enough, by the way, the disintegration of the black family is a trend that has accelerated across Americans of all races. And the disintegration of family ultimately means the disintegration of communities, society and a nation altogether, because absent that family structure, everything else collapses. He goes on. Many hopes were disappointed because those were unrealistic hopes to begin with. Economic and other disparities between groups have been common for centuries in countries around the world. And many of those disparities have been and still are larger than the disparities between blacks and whites in America. Even when those who lagged behind have advanced, they've not always caught up even after centuries because others were advancing at the same time. But when blacks did not catch up with whites in America within a matter of decades, that was treated as strange or even a sinister sign of crafty and covert racism civil rights were necessary but far from sufficient education and job skills are crucial and the government cannot give you these things all it can do is make them available race hustlers who blame all lags on the racism of others are among the obstacles to taking the fullest advantage of education and other opportunities what does that say about the content of their character Soul goes on a little bit to talk about the passage of the Civil Rights Act and how high hopes were following that act. He says, The bitter anti-climax that did follow provoked no rethinking. Instead, it provoked all sorts of new demands. Judging everybody by the same standards came to be regarded in some quarters as racist because it precluded preferences and quotas. That is, we should judge everyone by different standards and that's supposed to be anti-racist? It's absurd on its face. Soul goes on. There are people today who talk justice when they really mean payback, including payback against people who were not even born when historic injustices were committed. By the way, this applies to a criminal justice system. For example, in New York, where I mentioned we now have this no bail reform where criminals get protected under the guise of justice. But innocent victims walking the streets have to deal with these repeat offenders going out and committing all sorts of crimes through no fault of their own. And the criminal is treated as the aggrieved. So it pervades a lot of things. It's not just the racial relations in this country. Sol concludes, and this was talking uh, back in 2013, remember? So this was the Trayvon uh, whole hullabaloo, Trayvon Martin case. Transpiring, the nation has just been through a sensationalized murder trial in Florida on which many people took fierce positions before a speck of evidence was introduced based on nothing more than judging those involved by the color of their skin. President Obama did that himself, by the way, in the case of the Trayvon Martin Travail's tragedy. We have a long way to go to catch up to what Martin Luther King said 50 years ago, and we are moving in the opposite direction. And I think the record absolutely proves what Thomas Sowell was saying. Take, for example, something we've talked about on the show before, the 1619 Project. This is a project by the New York Times to reframe history as if American history really begins when slavery was introduced to the shores of, at the time, Virginia. And slavery actually had existed here decades, if not a century or more prior to that point. But that is the point at which the New York Times traces our history. So 1776 isn't the start of America. 1619 is. Our original sin of slavery is. That's where America's history should start. So it suggests from the very beginning that we were built on tyranny, not liberty, and that every evil aspect of America derives from its or, this original evil seed of slavery being introduced here, rather than the fact that America was an experiment in liberty, where slavery was the great exception to it, where the founding fathers themselves said it was basically intolerable, completely completely incompatible with what our founding principles were, completely incompatible with the Declaration of Independence, with the Constitution, not referenced in the Constitution by name because they knew that it was a blight on our nation. And m- most of the founders, uh, in particular the abolitionist founders, all said basically they found this to be an abhorrent system, one that had to be tolerated or there would not be a union. And then they, phased, they had language specifically in the Constitution to phase out the slave trade within 25 years. The document itself, of course, could not support slavery on its own merits, on the words in it. But the Times, instead, wants to reframe our history and introduce a curriculum into schools consistent with the 1619 Project, which explicitly says that America was basically a country founded on and built in tyranny, that capitalism and all of our other institutions spawned from it, That ultimately it is a deplorable experiment. And if it's a deplorable, evil experiment, then obviously the answer is you have to turn it on its head. You have to shred the Constitution. You have to repudiate the Declaration of Independence. These documents aren't viewed as the answers to discrimination and to a society that is flourishing and tolerant and truly pluralistic and judges people on their merits like King asked for and like Douglas identified centuries before, over a century before. They'd have us believe it's the exact opposite. Totally inconsistent, I would argue, the 1619 Project with what King called for. And Robert Woodson wrote a great editorial on this in the Wall Street Journal recently, and he talked about 1619. He said that today the progressive left wants to ignore the achievements and pretend that blacks are perpetual victims of white racism. 1619 Project essay series is the latest salvo in this attack on America's founding, claiming anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of this country. This statement is an abomination of everything Dr. King stood for. When we come right back, we'll talk a little bit more about Dr. King, 1619 Project in context of it, and the importance of the content of character over the color of skin. Right back, this is Ben Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back in just a second. You're in the freedom hut. This
0: is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben in for Buck Sexton. We've been talking about the ideals and principles that Martin Luther King stood for, and the left standing in contradiction to those principles today, sadly. And I was talking about this Robert Woodson Wall Street Journal editorial, and he quotes. From King and juxtaposes it with the 1619 project. He says, In sharp contrast to the claims of 1619, which disparages the American Revolution and Declaration of Independence and insists America is hopelessly racist, King believed deeply in the need to remain true to the founder's vision, quoting him, the patriot dream that sees beyond the years. To him, that was the, not. That was the only avenue toward fulfilling America's promise. As he wrote in his 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail, one day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what was best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Okay, well, our leftists today who would claim to carry the banner— of king say that the constitution and the declaration are inherently evil documents based upon the people that drafted them and what they derive from judeo-christian heritage they'd say that's code word for uh, white nationalism and ethnocentric europeanism and these other asinine concepts that they've come up with to try to create an academic veneer that legitimizes they're just anti-western ideology at its core Our sacred American values and the American dream. Our understanding of the American dream as conservative Americans, as traditional Americans, is the American nightmare in the left's reading of things. King added, We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abuse and scorn though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. And then Woodson goes on, Dr. King, who sought full participation in America, would never have indulged today's grievance-based identity politics whose social justice warriors use race as a battering ram against the country. In fact, in a letter from Birmingham jail, King explicitly warned against the type of groupthink that characterizes identity politics. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, said King, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. I'd say to the left, how can you look at what King said and what he wrote and then support an ideology that is inherently about color of skin, maybe to the total exclusion of content of character, certainly to some extent to the exclusion of content of character, but merit and the individual worth and dignity of a person should be all that matters at the end of the day in America. And we might not always achieve that ideal, but that should be the ideal, not the, not the opposite, not the antithesis. We're going to switch gears here, uh, and just after the break, we're going to have Julie Kelly on to talk about something I talked about last week, which does deal, incidentally, with our individual liberties and civil, civil rights in context of General Michael Flynn, certainly, and also in context of the government versus the people. In the Afghanistan papers. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton
0: Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And as you'll recall, on Friday, we did a very deep dive into the plight of General Michael T. Flynn and in particular, went into great depth on what I think is a document that in and of itself explains why Flynn had to be targeted as persona non grata, the number one priority for the deep staters in the Trump administration, based on this one interview alone. And that interview was a product of the Afghanistan papers, one that was flagged for me by a great writer, Uh, One of the best trolls, certainly, on the conservative side, uh, but also someone who writes just fantastic editorials and does some great journalistic work. And that's Julie Kelly, a senior contributor to American Greatness, and she joins us now. Julie, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. And I want to start, actually, with a news story that I'm sure you saw. You know, one of these stories rolled out once or twice a week, this one about... Uh, just these bombshell revelations about President Trump defying the generals and other senior officials in the administration, in particular, leading national security and foreign policy officials. wonder if you put that—well, first of all, isn't that what he was elected to do?
2: <laughs> right. He absolutely was. And, um, you know, he was right to question—I mean, we all support the military. We know what a hard job— they've all had the past two decades from Afghanistan through Iraq and other conflicts. Um, But look, we now know thanks to the expose that's been published in the Washington Post. What a debacle the Afghanistan war has been from the beginning. And Trump promised his base and his voters that he would look to end these perpetual wars. And I think that that was the crux of his questioning of these
1: military officials in 2017. And incidentally, that that questioning, I think, perfectly parallels what General Flynn asserted in his interview with the uh, the spec- Special Inspector General for the Afghanistan reconstruction efforts, because basically what he was calling out is, look, we spent now $7 trillion in treasure and all manner of blood, and, you know, at the end of the day, what did we get for it? It's or What is the return on the investment of our nation's resources. I wonder if you would summarize for us what you've found in parsing the Afghanistan papers thus far.
2: Well, just so everyone can understand where these papers came from, so this is, as you said, the Special Inspector General who was tasked in 2008 really to look at all the reconstruction efforts, what's been going on in Afghanistan since really 2002 after the invasion. So this special inspector general has conducted hundreds of interviews, not just with U.S. officials, but L.A. forces and uh, Afghan government officials as well, looking into, you know, what worked and what didn't work. And unfortunately, we found out that most of what we've been doing there has not worked. So these interviews give really some insight into know what has been happening for almost two decades. And one of those interviews was Mike Flynn, who um, has been an intelligence officer for decades and served in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And so um, he also worked in the Obama administration for James Clapper. So his interview was very interesting. and We can get into some of the details, but it makes more sense of why the Obama White House targeted him in 2014.
1: Yeah, it's amazing in some ways, to my mind, that he rose to be the head of DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, under the Obama administration, given his outspoken views. The only thing to which I can attribute it is really that he was so competent that that competence overcame the political correctness that would normally pervade a decision like elevating him to that role. Do you see it that way as well?
2: I think that that's true. And, you know, his experience really is unmatched. And so uh, but he was sounding the alarm early on at how the intelligence was being manipulated and politicized coming out of Afghanistan and how it was causing people to make really bad decisions. And he alerted not just the Obama White House, but also. CIA officials, I believe it was probably John Brennan, because, I mean, they weren't exactly equals, but pretty close, and questioning why the intelligence was being manipulated and politicized, and as it got higher up the chain, meaning to the president, um, he was not getting the truth, therefore he was not telling the American people the truth either.
1: And thus far in reviewing those Afghanistan papers, uh, what's been the most remarkable thing that you've been that you've found?
2: You know, Ben, I have to say, um, these are a lot of the same people, and I'm going to have a piece on this later uh, in the week as well. These are the very same people who have been criticizing Donald Trump since he first announced he was running for president. And I hate to make everything about Trump, but he is such a good clarifying figure. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these same former diplomats and national security officials, state department officials who've been highly critical of Donald Trump and his kind of ad hoc approach to foreign policy and diplomacy, these are the same people who have been misleading us, who now admit they really didn't know what was happening in Afghanistan. They really didn't know how to fix the problems that they had helped perpetuate. And now we're still in this disastrous war. I mean, we had two U.S. soldiers killed earlier this month. We had 23 killed in the country last year. Not that anyone in Washington is paying attention. Um, And so you really see this permanent ruling class in Washington at every level just really doesn't know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. One of the things that struck me in reviewing in great detail the General Flynn interview was he basically showed that there is rampant politicization, as you mentioned, of intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's out-and-out corruption in terms of the billions of dollars and ultimately trillions of dollars that were poured into Afghanistan and, and where it all went. And then there's the other aspect, which is uncomfortable to discuss, which is the fact that the bureaucracies themselves, like any bureaucracy, has vested interest in growing bigger in claiming issues Uh, where they may not be there necessarily, or in basically defining a mandate which demands then greater and greater funds because every government agency and every bureaucracy, period, is subject to those kind of pressures, and bureaucracies don't shrink themselves. They only expand. Uh, What did you make of his interview generally?
2: I mean, he was extremely candid in what he told the interviewers, and um, he addressed all of the topics you just said the corruption, the opiate industry that we've also poured billions into trying to halt Afghanistan's production of uh, opiate and destroy their poppy fields. That's been a complete disaster. Um, And so he really touched on the intelligence, the ongoing corruption, the failure to address all of the other rampant problems there and the notion that he alerted top officials about this. And so, just to give people the timeline, so this would have been between 2012 and 2014 um, when he was, you know, sounding the alarm. And, and he basically says in the interview, in one passage, if we're if everything seems to be going so great, why does it feel like we're losing? And he was not just telling, and he also was testifying, I couldn't get a copy of it, I believe it was behind closed doors, to the Homeland Security uh, uh, Committee in 2015 about this issue, too. And so he, um, you know, so the Obama people were aware, Mike Flynn was making this public um, to lawmakers on Capitol Hill and also to the press, so they viewed him. As a problem, and as I wrote in my first piece, he really was essentially a whistleblower. And at a very precarious time, so this would have been, you know, around 2012, 2013, 2014. The surge was over; they were bringing troops home. The situation was deteriorating. Joe Biden and Barack Obama were trying to make this sound like a success. But it was not. And um, for many reasons. And so now we know it's, uh, you know, in worse condition than when uh, Obama and Biden left it and another mess for Donald Trump to try to clean up.
1: Yeah, it it bears emphasizing the point that you made about General Flynn being a true, true whistleblower. And you wrote a column about this, which is what drew my attention to Flynn's interview. I wasn't even aware that it was in those archives in the first place. He was a whistleblower and he paid the a real price for it. First in the Obama administration and then subsequently for a short lived time in the Trump administration. So he should be the one that's really held up as the whistleblower, not the so-called whistleblower that's at the core of a, sh- a you know a, a sham of an impeachment process who will probably never testify it seems.
2: No, no, he won't. He's been, you know, protected and heralded as a hero and a martyr. And so we never have to hear from him. Meanwhile, Mike Flynn's life is destroyed. Obama's FBI under Jim Comey, as we now know, opened up an investigation into Mike Flynn. The targeting of Mike Flynn actually preceded any of that. It really started in 2014. Um, So now, you know, we see the, the unequal fates of two whistleblowers.
1: Why aren't the Afghanistan papers, in your view, given that it's living history, it remains relevant, and there has never been a lessons learned, it seems, either in the executive branch or the legislative branch on this issue, why aren't they getting more attention?
2: Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, one. The Washington Post uh, published this series in the beginning of December. So it was buried amid the impeachment drama and also the Michael Horowitz report on visa abuse. So I think that that was part of it. Um, And obviously, you know, official Washington does not want to bring attention to the documents and interviews contained in that expose. So they are willfully ignoring it. I think that that's part of this distraction now with what Donald Trump allegedly said to military officials in 2017 about the war. Um, And these were excerpts from a book that were published in the Washington Post, the same paper that's published the Afghanistan papers. So this almost seems like a little bit of a cover up for what, you know, these officials are now being exposed as having done. Um, There's not one person to blame as far as the Afghanistan war. I mean, this runs over three administrations and hundreds of thousands of officials. So there's not one person to really target here. Although I do have a piece up tomorrow about Joe Biden we can talk a little bit about that he's now trying to rewrite history big surprise about his role in afghanistan from the very beginning 2001 you know up to the present date um and so it's unfortunate and that's why we are trying to cover the papers a little bit more to bring more attention because it really has been buried
1: since you've given us that little tease about joe biden uh we'll pick it up on the other side of a short break this is ben weingarten in for buck Sexton on the buck Sexton show more with julie kelly just after this You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we've been talking with Julie Kelly, a senior contributor to American Greatness, about the Afghanistan papers. I think Julie just made an excellent point that bears repeating, which is that there is no one person to whom we should point a finger at with respect to the morass and, frankly, the failure called a success repeatedly for almost two decades of Afghanistan. The fact that it has transcended administrations, secretaries of defense, all manner of generals, folks at every level of government and in the military as well and that we've ended up in this situation i think if anything speaks to a much more pervasive problem it would be even better it would be a much better situation if you could actually point fingers and there would be lessons learned that only implicated a few people and we could make corrective action going forward but the fact is that it transcends party year generation uh that that speaks to a, a serious failure that we have currently in our government and in our ability to execute wars to the extent we should be executing the wars that we're entering in the first place. But I want to bring back Julie specifically to talk about something that is coming in a forthcoming column, I believe, and that is how Joe Biden is implicated in all things Afghanistan. So, Julie, take it away.
2: So, Ben, you'd be hard-pressed to find a politician in Washington who has his fingerprints more on the Afghanistan war than Joe Biden, right? Right. So he has been a senator since the 1970s. He was chairman and then ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee. He voted to approve the authorization for the war in 2001. In 2002, he helped co-author legislation that authorized this rebuilding effort that now has cost over $130 billion, more than the Marshall Plan, if you can believe it, in in current dollars. And interestingly, in 2007, when he was running against Barack Obama, Joe Biden wanted a new surge of troops, a new influx of troops. He called it a surge um, into Afghanistan, redirecting troops from Iraq into Afghanistan. Now he's on the campaign trail, claiming that he opposed the surge, um, which there's some details uh, about that that he's kind of right but mostly wrong, um, because he did he did support a surge, just not to the degree that the generals wanted, and that Obama eventually settled on. So again, we're getting half truths from Joe Biden, and I detail this in a column tomorrow.
1: tomorrow. Half truths from Joe Biden might qualify as successful, and when you consider his whole record. And foreign policy and national security. I mean, I think it's almost safe to say that his only success when it comes with any implications for foreign policy is enriching his family members. Is that accurate?
2: (laughs) I think that that's probably true. And I think that that was his his interest. Um, And, you know, it would be interesting for somebody to go back in detail how anyone profited off of his continued support of reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Because he was an early champion of this, and so I'm sure that there's, uh, I'm sure there's some Biden family members who have profited off of that too. Um, but look, now he's promising to uh, end the war in Afghanistan. Think about this, Ben. If Joe Biden somehow miraculously takes the White House when he is sworn in, if Donald Trump does not bring all of our troops home, if Joe Biden is sworn in, he will inherit a war that he helped start two decades ago that he has perpetuated, that he has approved. His fingerprints are on every aspect of the Afghanistan war since the beginning. Um, But now he's allowed to, of course, rewrite history and back away from his involvement. Um, And he shouldn't be, especially in light of these reports that we have. Um, You know, it would be great for someone to challenge Joe Biden on the Mike Flynn interview and what he knew about intelligence. I mean, he brags all the time how he is, uh, you know, Barack Obama's foreign policy whisperer, well, what did he know?
1: I'm sure that he would challenge the person asking that question to a push-up contest, and that would be the end (laughs) of it.
2: (laughs) He'd say, hey, look, Jack, you know, that's not true, Jack. Come on, man, talk about the facts.
1: You know, his favorite pivot. We've got uh, about under a minute left. I did want to touch on one more piece that you wrote recently related to this, and that concerns ICIG corruption, that is the intelligence community inspector general who's implicated in the whistleblower, the quote-unquote whistleblower that we talked about before and bringing his case forth. Tell us a little about that.
3: So
2: here's the guy at the center. This is the one transcript Um, that Adam Schiff won't release. And this is the transcript closed door testimony of Michael Atkinson, who is the intelligence community inspector general who kind of helped launch this latest impeachment crusade. He handled the complaint, the whistleblower, I use scare quotes, whistleblower complaint. He told Congress that it was a matter of urgent concern, tried to go over his boss's head and bring attention to this. Michael Atkinson is closely tied to many of the key figures in the Russiagate scandal. He worked directly for the head of the National Security Division, which was in charge of handling Carter Page's visa. He was the chief counsel for Mary McCord, who was the head of that division, who also oversaw the Russian collusion, bogus Russia collusion investigation. And he worked for her for months. He stayed in that agency until he was inexplicably approved by the Republican Senate to serve as the watchdog for an intelligence community that's been trying to destroy Donald Trump from the beginning. Anyway, my point and it's in my piece is that Senate Republicans are smart. That's a big if. Their very first witness, in my opinion, should be Michael Atkinson. Ask him about his role in Russiagate from the beginning, uh, from July of 2016 when all of this really started happening until he left at the end of 2017.
1: Here, here. And we're going to have to leave it right there, Joy. Thank you so much for coming on the program. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton
0: Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And although I hate talking about this topic, impeachment, uh, obviously, we're rolling right into it. This this week is where it really takes off in the Senate. And there was some substantial developments over the weekend with the Democrats putting out a brief, explaining, making their case for why Trump must be removed from office, even though they know they can't get the two-thirds in the Senate. It, it's pretty funny, actually. If you look at some of what they discuss in their brief, they say they tell other senators— Follow the Constitution and rise above partisan differences, as you hear the case. President Trump abused the power of his office to solicit foreign interference in our elections for his own personal political gain, thereby jeopardizing our national security, the integrity of our elections, and our democracy, the impeachment manager said in a statement. So you want senators to rise above partisan differences and follow the Constitution, but you are putting forth an entirely partisan impeachment process where you had Democrats in the House either abstain or switch parties altogether. But you want senators to rise above. What does that mean? They want senators to turn their backs and stab their stab their voters in the back, basically, is what they're asking for senators to do. Really, of course, you know, this is just a charade. To try to throw as many things as the against the wall as possible, while taking those going against, for example, Joe Biden off the campaign trail in the Senate, uh, as a means of trying to inflict maximum political punishment. Rolling into the 2020 election. So then the White House put out a short, concise—I think—pretty strong defense and. They say the articles of impeachment violate the Constitution. They are defective in their entirety. They're the product of invalid proceedings. That flagrantly denied the president any due process rights. They rest on dangerous distortions of the Constitution that would do lasting damage to our structure of government. And then it goes on to say that in the first article, the House attempts to seize the president's power under Article two of the Constitution to determine foreign policy. This is the abuse of power, quote unquote, article. In the second article, this is the obstruction of Congress. None of these are high crimes defined as high crimes and misdemeanors or any of the other actual crimes stated in the impeachment clause of the Constitution, of course. In the second article, the House attempts to control and penalize the assertion of the executive branch's constitutional privileges while simultaneously seeking to destroy the framers' system of checks and balances. By approving the articles, the House violated our constitutional order, illegally abused its power of impeachment, and attempted to obstruct President Trump's ability to faithfully execute the duties of his office. They sought to undermine his authority under Article 2 of the Constitution, which vests the entirety of the the executive power in a president of the United States of America. In order to preserve—and I think this is, by the way, the most important paragraph in the whole thing. In order to preserve our constitutional structure of government, to reject the poisonous partisanship that the framers warned against, and by the way, many of the House Democrats who were there during the Clinton impeachment warned against— To ensure one-party political impeachment vendettas did not become the new normal, and to vindicate the will of the American people, the Senate must reject both articles of impeachment. In the end, this entire process is nothing more than a dangerous attack on the American people themselves and their fundamental right to vote. And that's true. And again, what drives me nuts about this whole thing is that this even has to be written. There shouldn't have to be a brief because the whole process is illegitimate. The process is illegitimate. The substance is illegitimate. It's a joke, and it pains me that Republicans are being forced to play defense by Democrats' rules when Democrats don't control the presidency, and they they don't control the Senate either. And that is why, as I said last week, it is so imperative that Mitch McConnell and the other Republicans step up and fight the Democrats just as hard as the Democrats are fighting them, whether they realize it's an attack on themselves or not. If for no other reason than protect the institutions— Whatever reason you have to find to muster the defense that the president deserves, the American people deserve, the Constitution deserves, against an anti-constitutional political adversary. So there was news that Mitch McConnell has built in a kill switch in the rules governing the impeachment. And you you always the devil is always in the details in a process like this. And as I've said, McConnell knows all the different kind of parliamentary parliamentary procedures. How you can phrase the language properly to fight the Democrats with the same fervor that they're fighting the president and the Republicans. So he supposedly inserted this kill switch. What does that mean? There's a measure, according to Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, who's been very good on impeachment, and many other issues for that matter. A freshman senator who emerged as a top ally of the president had previously drafted a measure dismissing the charges if the House did not formally transmit them by changing Senate rules to do so. He said that the rules package for the impeachment trial includes a measure that allows for the president's legal team to quickly push for a summary judgment or dismissal at any time should things get wild. And the way Hawley describes it himself is, my understanding is that the resolution will give the president's team the option to either... Move to judgment or to move to dismiss at a meaningful time, and it's sad that it's come to this because we couldn't get enough Republicans to dismiss the thing in general. Now, instead, we have to, in some sense, legitimize a charade, and that is what really sticks in my craw about this whole issue: is that if it's illegitimate, the fact that we put all these constitutional niceties on it, these bells and whistles, and we're we're treating some, we're treating an adversary. Who wants to kill us as if they're operating in some form of good faith. And that's why it's not just about dismissing or acquitting. It should be about punishing Democrats for putting this thing forth in the first place. And again, sort of like with Hillary Clinton, how she was never actually brought to real justice. The only justice was her losing the American people, putting Donald Trump in the Oval Office. It's the same thing in 2020. I have a feeling that we're going to be the only ones that have a say in terms of whether Democrats really pay a price for this fraud that they've been foisting on the American people. Another illustration of the fraudulent, the whole fraudulent tenor of this quote-unquote impeachment, non-impeachment. And this is from Jonathan Turley, again, a civil libertarian on the left. He wrote a little post on gerald nadler house judiciary chair complete phony in this by the way i wrote about this right after the midterm elections when he was on a train ride back from new york and molly hemingway my colleague at the federalist reported that she just happened to be sitting in the train car behind him where he announced basically that they were going to be doing impeachment and a bunch of calls to you know supposedly private calls should have been private calls no discretion, I guess, from Nadler, where he telegraphed that this is the way that we were going into impeachment. And I wrote after that about some video that if you, anyone go on C-SPAN, take a look at the impeachment proceedings during Clinton. Nadler made the most rigorous depe- defense you could ever have for President Donald Trump. Never have You should never have a partisan impeachment. It should never be one-sided. It's a disaster for the American people. It's a disaster for the Constitution. It's a disaster for liberty showing himself to be a complete hypocrite now. And so Turley talks about the fact that Nadler doesn't want Hunter Biden to be called as a witness. He says there will be no trades of witnesses. Well, here's what Turley says. If true that Nadler will not do this trade of witnesses if hunter biden is a part of the deal witnesses to be called during the senate trial so if democrats get to call john bolton republicans get to call hunter biden if true is the house prepared to give up on proving its case to protect the biden's from the ignoble moment of answering questions about the ukraine contract that is a considerable price to pay to protect joe biden It's also another reason why the decision to rush the impeachment vote was such a historic blunder by Speaker Pelosi. They waited a couple of months. They could have called these witnesses and not handed over control to the Senate. Instead, they impeached by Christmas and then waited a month. So why would they do that? Was that a blunder, a tactical blunder by Pelosi and her colleagues? Well, again, I think it it points to a motive potentially for, or pretext, a justification for taking off the field Joe Biden's competitors. If you looked at impeachment purely through a Biden prism, his competition has been taken off the playing field if this trial goes for weeks and weeks, number one. And then number two, Biden Biden's unethical behavior, real quid pro quo, real bribery is at the heart of the whole impeachment sham. So is the impeachment sham, like the Mueller Special Counsel, in effect another cover-up? Mueller Special Counsel tied up a bunch of loose ends with respect to misconduct on the government side in pursuing Trump. Is this again Democrat attempt to obstruct misconduct on their side with Biden? Because quid quid, quid pro quo and bribery, which Democrats would no longer apply to President Trump because they know that it's not there and they know that it doesn't fit their impeachment articles when they poll test, what are the words that work? Could it once again be that they engaged in the very behavior that they accused Trump and Republicans of? And could it be once again that they are trying to cover up that malfeasance by claiming malfeasance on the other side? Urge you to read, by the way, Peter Schweitzer's column on how five Biden family members have all profited handsomely during his time in office, sometimes directly and other times indirectly related to the positions, senior level positions that he's held for decades and decades. And then I'll leave it with this on the impeachment subject. Byron York also wrote a great column where he talks about two of the deceptions at the heart of the brief that the Democrats put forth explaining why it is imperative that we must remove the president today even though they have no case and they say for protecting the integrity of the current presidential race since last time he got help from Russia and he accepted it Read York's column. I I urge you to read it. He talks about these two deceptions, one of them being that Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate, quote-unquote, a debunked conspiracy theory that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 presidential election to aid President Trump, but instead that Ukraine interfered in that election to aid President Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton. Okay, I, I would question that assertion. York gives them, concedes the fact that effectively Russia was, Solely trying to aid President Trump. I mean, it doesn't say solely in their quote, but trying to aid President Trump. When in reality, Russia was trying to sow discord. And if you look at it, they paid for ads for a bunch of candidates, not just President Trump, including Democrats. But we leave that aside for the sake of argument. There's never been an argument that Ukraine interfered to help Hillary Clinton and no Russia involvement. That's a flat out lie. That's York's first point, which is a very good point. And it's very clear that there is absolutely evidence out there of Ukrainian officials who did not want Trump to win and put out words, direct words to that effect, including, I believe, the New York Times reporting on this. Thrown under the rug now, shoved under the rug. And then the other part is about asking Russia for help, when obviously, as you know, Trump welcomed Russian election interference was not what Trump did. He said, release the emails. It was obviously in jest in a context of a much broader narrative. So what York argues that it's totally misleading to say that that was genuinely asking for Russian help and Russian interference in the election. As he writes, Trump did, in fact, welcome Russia based leaks, but grossly out of context. The context is this. Trump welcomed Russia. Russia based weeks about the Clinton campaign because the media were enthusiastically embracing and repeating Russian based leaks about the Clinton campaign. Print, Internet, TV, everyone was accepting repeating and amplifying the material released by WikiLeaks from the Russian hack of top Clinton campaign official John Podesta. And then he runs through a bunch of articles talking about this as well. It's just representative, the fact that these two assertions would be at the heart of the Democrats' brief. It's just so representative of the fact that this whole thing is a sham. It's a joke, and that's why it should be treated as such. It should be taken seriously from the perspective of Democrats are going to fight tooth and nail and claw and do everything they possibly can to extract as much blood as they possibly can from this process. But it is a joke on the merits, and it should be treated as such by us certainly. It's a serious, Attack on us, the Republican Party, the president, representative of the forgotten man in this country. But the way that it's being handled exposes the nature of our opponent, and they cannot be dealt with as if we're fighting on an even playing field here. For them, it's always the ends justify the means. We need to take that deathly seriously. This is Ben in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, back just after this. <laughs> You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. I want to turn from domestic developments to international developments. And on this show, I like to talk about China as the main focus on the national security and foreign policy side, because we should never lose track of it. Number one. Number two... Much of the main news stories that the mainstream media is going to focus on are only seen through the Trump-focused prism, number one. And number two, miss the context of just how substantial this reorientation in U.S. national security and foreign policy is towards viewing China as the number one international threat to our liberty. That is the essential story. It shouldn't be lost in the fog of a disinformation war that the left has created and propagated through their communications arm in the media. And in just a couple minutes, we're gonna bring on someone who is, in my view, one of the best China experts and very focused on Taiwan in particular. But I do think, again, it pays to level set always with what is the nature of this regime? And last week I talked about some of the brutal human rights abuses, the tyrannical totalitarian nature of the Chinese Communist Party that controls every entity in China and then seeks to control dissenters abroad and suppress them as well this is an article i really i urge you to read it in its entirety because it is chilling and it should underscore just how serious this threat is emerging and coming on fast this is an article in the diplomat titled exporting china's social credit system to central asia and the subtitle is beijing building a cross-border social engineering system one software solution at a time Now, you know, the social credit system is basically where China collects intelligence, monitors, tracks all of their citizens and assigns them a score based upon effectively how closely do they adhere to the Chinese Communist Party line and the aims of the state. And if you don't, you pay all sorts of penalties, including not being able to take flights outside the country. It could impact your actual credit score, your ability to get a mortgage there. Every aspect of your life under a microscope of the Chinese Communist Party. So here are a couple of the anecdotes about that. By September 2018, 14.6 million untrustworthy Chinese nationals were banned from buying plane tickets. By December 2018, 3.5 million Chinese nationals have reversed their untrustworthy status through various forms of community service. So they came in line with the party. Many Chinese nationalists have quickly adapted to this new way of discipline. It works. And now China is handing out its system to its neighbors. And that's the problem, by the way, for us and the rest of the world. So this article goes into all these other countries that have been consulting with China. in it's near and further abroad about implementing this sort of system themselves. To judge their own citizens. And who runs those systems, operates for them, where's the software coming from and the hardware? Oh, it comes from China. Can you imagine... What China can do with that information, that power, and that control? When they say you are the product, and China's offering this free in many instances, you really are the product here. Take a short break. This is Ben Wangan in for Buck sex on the Buck Sexton Show. More on China just after this.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple
1: Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And before the break, I was talking a little bit about China's social credit system, one of the most Orwellian advents that we've seen in the 21st century, and their exporting of that system abroad. And it speaks to a more fundamental issue, which is that China does not, and the Chinese Communist Party itself, does not just desire to obviously dominate its own mainland, but it has expansionist, you could argue, imperialist ambitions as well. And one of those imperialist ambitions concerns Taiwan. Here to join me to talk a little bit about recent developments in Taiwan and this theme that I just mentioned is former Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President Dick Cheney and CEO of consulting firm DC International Advisory. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the program. My pleasure. Happy to join you. So, Steve, you were recently in Taiwan for their elections, uh, which was resulted in, I believe, a resounding victory for the DPP, Democratic Progressive Party. First of all, why should Americans care about what just went down in Taiwan? Well, Americans
4: should care because, uh, first and foremost, this is the only democracy on the planet that the establishment deep state folks in washington dc have convinced the u.s government to help isolate and ignore Uh, so we don't give them diplomatic relations we've sent former secretaries of state when they were in office to negotiate with the likes of the iranians we've established diplomatic relations with cuba but somehow this self-governing free and democratic island we've been complicit in isolating so first and foremost i think as americans We should want to fix this mistake. But second, the Communist Party of China has taken on a very aggressive kind of all options on the table approach to influence operations. In other words, trying to shape politics and national security decision-making in many parts around the world uh, to their favor. It's their right to try, but we have been slow in the free world to wake up to this challenge. Taiwan is by far per capita, the most attacked territory on the planet by the Communist Party of China in these ways. And so watching the democracy of Taiwan in action is a good lesson for us to basically be smarter about what we do here in the United States and how to bolster our allies uh, to keep the, the pressure on
1: the Chinese Communist Party in Asia so they can't play so much on our own turf. And I mentioned the Democratic Progressive Party, their president remaining in power uh, and it being really a resounding victory in contrast to the party that is viewed as more aligned with the Chinese Communist Party and open, amenable to some form of a reunification. What were your takeaways from the recent election?
4: Well, I think the Communist Party of China was on the ballot in this Taiwan election. I take nothing away From President Tsai Ing-wen who did indeed win a resounding re-election but there are a couple of unusual things that happened Uh, in most developed democracies we have polling that shows the youth vote going strongly one way or another when it comes to their candidate preference or party preference but then they don't tend to turn out to vote as well Uh, well the developments in Hong Kong changed that profoundly for the younger demographic in Taiwan They saw the youth of Hong Kong being willing to risk everything and, frankly, continue to get arrested uh, to stand up for their fundamental rights against the Communist Party's encroachment. And the youth of Taiwan felt even more committed to turning out. There were a lot of people from Hong Kong that were in Taiwan for the election. It was really moving commentary to hear them Tell Taiwan audiences about why they need to protect the democracy that they have. Don't let themselves become the next Hong Kong. So I think really uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the leader of the Communist Party of China and the party itself were on the ballot and overwhelmingly lost in Taiwan, which represents the second popular massive rebuke of the Communist Party, if you count
1: the local elections in Hong Kong not that long ago. You mentioned real, genuine foreign interference in Taiwan's democratic election system and government. What are some of the lessons for Americans based upon Taiwan's experience dealing with, in effect, attacks, information warfare attacks, at the very least, from the Chinese Communist Party there?
4: Well, number one, we have to stop playing sort of junior high school games about the 2016 election and whatever was done by way of facebook ads what the chinese communist party is doing is much larger in scale uh, in terms of geographical reach but also in terms of money and assets involved and they don't limit limit their information operations or influence operations to just some online postings of fake news they have ways of trying to put pressure on our academic institutions Uh, putting pressure on our media organizations. And this is what you learn when you watch things in Taiwan up close and personal, they have learned that they have to track what they call red capital money that comes from the mainland directly or indirectly to, to control or shape the information environment they operate in. Uh, And so they have the classical spy versus spy stuff where former, Military officers get induced to come to the mainland to sell out their country. We have to watch out for that. Uh, But they also have these modern techniques that are quite successful in some ways, where they throw money at universities, and the universities become less open to free speech and free thought, and they basically conform to what their donors do. And it's one thing if those donors are from free market and free world. It's another thing if they're basically taking their marching orders from the Communist Party of China. And that's happened in American universities, but the Taiwanese have a more educated and engaged population now taking it seriously. And we can learn from what they're
1: doing to resist. I think it's worth reiterating uh, the point that's sort of implicit in all of this, which is that information warfare is really a fight to win a war of ideas so that you can ultimately triumph in the way of getting other nations to bend to your will or even worse without ever having to fire a shot. At the core, isn't really what China is attempting to do to exert their power wherever they see fit, whenever they see fit at the end of the day?
4: I think it is. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. And they have every right to try. But we just need to remember that this is not just two average athletes taking the field. We have a force that is fundamentally evil and taking free will away from the people it governs. And another force that sacrifices every single day to preserve that freedom to choose. It's not just for ourselves, but others around the world. Uh, And the Communist Party of China has been at this for a long time. We have chosen, I think unwisely, to invest in ways that have made them more modern, more capable, and more powerful to our disadvantage. And I think we've sobered up a bit, but the, in the, but the challenge is very real and we're at the front end of figuring out how to meet it. And you're quite right to note, if we're smart about this, we have a lot of means at our disposal where this doesn't have to end up in a classical military clash. We can and should be doing more to make things more complicated for them at home. After all, they're failing their people too, not just challenging ours.
1: And to that end, there were reports, for example, of a directive from the National Security Council that would have authorized the U.S. engaging more in offensive cyber warfare, which clearly would implicate China. What would you advocate that the U.S. government to do in terms of going on the offensive as opposed to being reactive or, as we've been in the past, willfully ignorant or willfully blind to it?
4: Well, sadly, you're right. We have been willfully ignorant and too passive. Uh, And I do support offensive cyber operations. After all, if our enemies are going to do that to us, I just don't believe in the false distinction between offensive versus defensive capabilities. If I have a gun in my hand and the barrel is pounded outward, it's defensive to me and it's offensive to somebody else. And it's nearly no different with a lot of the tools that are in the cyber world. But fundamentally – What we're talking about is trying to break down the great firewall of China that is keeping people in and under control and uh, basically turn some of these tools that were meant to promote freedom and empowerment and prosperity uh, into really meeting those ends. In other words, within China, uh, the Internet and social media have really been used to create an Orwellian surveillance and control state. Uh, but we have been complicit in being passive about pushing information choices and the truth into China so that the leaders would have to be accountable to that truth. We're very behind on that. On the other hand, we've allowed our freedom in some ways to be our vulnerability. We want people to like us. We want them to have a taste of what we have. We think it will influence them, and that works some of the time. It just doesn't work as well when you have a determined basically ideologically committed
1: enemy that's operating against you how one of the things just to level set a bit on taiwan specifically that our our listeners may not be aware of is that china basically undertook a campaign to put other nations to a test you're either with us or you're with taiwan and most people sided with the people's republic of china so-called not taiwan and thus Taiwan sort of is in diplomatic limbo in some ways in terms of not being recognized by many, by many nations, at least on an official basis, uh, including being in a sort of fluid position with respect to the U.S. How much of a propaganda coup would it be against the Chinese Communist Party if nations started to recognize Taiwan? One domino fell and then several fell.
4: Well, it would be a diplomatic coup of sorts, but I'm afraid it really would just be a reclamation of common sense and truth. And so, I mean, it's not something that you would do out of any sense of malice towards China. It's something we should do out of uh, self-respect in sort of looking at this island nation of Taiwan as never having been under the sovereign control of the People's Republic of China The Communist Party of China declared revolution on the Chinese people back in the 1940s. They did, in fact, win that civil war and took control of the mainland. They never took control of Taiwan. And I think it's been weak minds and appeasement mindset that has granted them the latitude to control our language and our thought for the better part of the last 50 years. And trying to say there is one China in the world and that Taiwan is a part of it when all you have to do is look at a map and you'll see that the island is significantly offshore. And if you just read a little bit of history, you'll realize the Communist Party has never controlled it. If they want to unify with Taiwan, it's their business. But we should be there to help insist that it be peaceful and with the consent of the Taiwan people. I don't think that they'll win that consent, but really that is where we need to be. Uh, And I think the U.S. government under the Trump administration has made a significant shift in the right direction, at least initially, in pressuring Taiwan's remaining allies to stay firm and not get bought off by Chinese inducements. But we would do right by ourselves, not just as a favor to Taiwan, to say we're going to increase uh, levels of diplomatic recognition for Taiwan. And it's really only after the United States leads the way that others will have the courage and common sense to do so as well. I think it would be an investment in ultimately peace and prosperity and put the pressure on the mainland to improve itself if it
1: really wants the acceptance
4: of the taiwan people and us
1: lastly looking just to our north today marks the beginning of the extradition trial of huawei's cfo who is being held effectively under house arrest in canada based upon u.s brought charges involving both bank fraud and then dealings with iran that huawei allegedly lied about. Uh, what do you make of this trial and what is its significance?
4: Well, there are a couple of things that play in it. Number one, we have the relatives of high-ranking communist leaders that get posh, exceedingly well-paid jobs to go around the world pretending as if they're not a front for the Communist Party of China in their commercial enterprises. That's a, an important wake-up call for people to look at. But second... This company, Huawei, was actively engaged in avoiding sanctions against Iran. So we have the duplicity of the Chinese government at the United Nations occasionally going along with a, with a, a broad-based vote on, on sanctions related to counterproliferation or otherwise, uh, but then commercially actively working to undermine those sanctions. Uh, And then the other thing that I think is really, really important not to forget this uh, high ranking Huawei officer was, in fact, pretty looks pretty guilty of doing uh, these things that undermine our national security. But the Chinese in retaliation against the Canadian government took a couple of Canadian NGO workers who haven't been seen since. Uh, And so uh, we have this dichotomy of. Uh, uh, Chinese commercial slash party person on trial in Canada, but living in Martha Stewart luxury prison uh, accommodations. Uh, And then we have these two poor NGO workers that have been put into what I'm sure is a much less humane environment in in China and have been taken off the grid. So that's what's at stake in that trial. Uh, Are we going to have rule of law and a China that honors obligations And put outward, are these companies for real commercial or are they political and strategic? And then we have this whole issue of retaliation that really hasn't gotten the international attention it deserves.
1: We're going to have to leave it right there. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the program. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. And this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. I want to transition from Asia to the Middle East. And there was a story out of the Middle East that, well, someone was brought to justice who should have been brought to justice. Let's put it that way. The headline on American greatness was Islamic State heavyweight nabbed in Iraq so fat he had to be loaded onto flatbed truck. The Iraqi military have bagged a big in. The 560-pound Islamic State mufti known as Jabba the Hutt, or Jabba the Jihad, I believe, is the way the New York Post wrote it up, is so enormously fat after he was captured, Iraqi forces had to load him onto a flatbed truck because he f- couldn't fit in a police car. The ISIS heavyweight Abu Abdul Bari, also known as Shifa al-Nima, put the fat in fatwa, according to the New York Post. He was nabbed Thursday by an elite SWAT team of the Nineveh regiment in the city of Mosul, Stars and Stripes reported on Friday. Despite his morbid obesity, the Islamic State official was known to be a cruel monster who raped and murdered civilians. So I think this is a good representative of who these Islamic supremacists are, because this guy could not move, and he was a coward sending out people to commit the most heinous of acts in the name of his religion, this Islamic supremacist monster. We're going to talk a little bit more about some Islamic supremacist monsters right after this quick break. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, back just after this.
0: Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And before the break, we are talking a little bit about this transition from Asia to Uh, the Middle East, and in particular in this case, a little bit north to Iran. And there was a video making the rounds over the weekend, uh, being propagated, of course, by the Islamic supremacist regime in Tehran's minions, let's call them. Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, holding his grandson and cooing and, and cuddling him, And so one one commenter on this was noting, Iran carefully shaped his image in life and continues to do so in depth. And all I could think to myself, looking at these images, and it's revolting to see them try to portray this man as some kind of humanitarian. Remember, Soleimani had the blood of hundreds of Americans on his hand, dead Americans, from roadside bombs that he was responsible for perfecting. Thousands of other Americans injured, maimed, not to mention thousands of other civilians around the world, hundreds of thousands of people in Syria, all of the Europeans who have had to deal with the Syrian refugee crises themselves. This man has done incalculable damage as a human being, as the leader, the orchestrator of Iran's imperialist ambitions, growing them around the world. And they put out this picture. And all I can think to myself is, this man is a monster. And you should read the comments, because the comments, in this case, read the comments. Because those, other people have hit the nail on the head with respect to this sort of jihadist propaganda coming out of Iran. And, you know, the sickening thing, really, when you think about it is, how much different is this image being portrayed of him holding his grandson? Well, first of all, again... How many people will never be able to hold their child or their grandchild because of what this man did in his life, this monster did in his life? That's my real takeaway. This man has destroyed an incalculable number of families, and nations for that matter. But also, this is sort of the way that our media portrayed him as well. not an austere religious scholar per se but whatever is analogous to that when it comes to being the architect the mastermind of iran's imperialist global ambitions exporting its islamist revolution around the world there was other news out of iran as well though that was overshadowed by some of these other headlines but is hugely significant So here's a headline from the Daily Mail. Exclusive secret document that proves Iran was building a nuclear weapon as far back as 2002, even while they claimed the technology was only for peaceful purposes. Document was seized as part of a raid by Israeli intelligence agents on a compound in Tehran in 2018. From an Iranian official, this document requesting the parameters of a warhead fitted on a missile in November 2002. And scribbled in the top left corner is a note from its nuclear chief, who signs off on the plans, and this document is apparently the centerpiece of an as-yet-unreleased report highlighting Iran's clandestine nuclear activities. Once again, how could you have a deal with a regime that's lied about and concealed and obfuscated and deceived on every aspect of its nuclear effort going back a couple of decades? It's the same guys in power, and it is the supreme leader, Khamenei, running the whole regime. Yeah, when the Obama administration tried to create this moderate hardliners split within leadership, what they failed to address is the fact that the elected leaders, quote unquote, are only eligible to achieve those positions if the malocracy controlled by Kamene and others around him, approve of them. It's a rubber stamped regime. It's a puppet regime at the end of the day. It's a puppet regime. So, how can you have a deal with them? What is the deal? The deal isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. The deal is Iran continues to advance his program more clandestinely with hundreds of billions of dollars more and then gets it legitimated at the end because of the sunset provisions that allow Iran to be treated as a legitimate nuclear power to continue its ballistic missile proliferation. And meanwhile, our media, of course. Headline from the Atlantic. This is pretty good. And this is in context of the unraveling of the so-called Iran nuclear deal, as even our European partners start to suddenly realize, hey, maybe this isn't a regime that would actually honor the garbage JCPOA. And this is a tweet from Mike Duran. And that the headline is from The Atlantic, which grudgingly admits that the killing of Soleimani was a masterstroke, but it can't bring itself to give Trump credit for knowing what he was doing. So here's the headline. Donald Trump stumbles into a foreign policy triumph that when you have to resort to that, you know, we must have done something right. And the article is actually, I think, pretty revealing. This is from a European correspondent for The Atlantic. And he writes, while it's clearly too early to judge the long-term ramifications of the president's decision to order the killing, the initial assessment among many in the foreign policy establishment here in London is not quite what you might expect. The attack, in the view of analysts and British officials I spoke with, the latter of whom requested anonymity to discuss government discussions, has, at a stroke, reasserted American military dominance and revealed the constraints of Iranian power. Although Trump's foreign policy strategy, if one even accepts that there is such a thing, of course they have to be snarky like this and question the legitimacy of everything, has many limits. His unpredictability, and most crucially, his willingness to escalate a crisis, okay, that's one way to portray it, another way is diffuse a crisis by using overwhelming force such that Iran will think twice about doing anything hostile to the U.S., Willingness to escalate a crisis using the U.S. military and economic strength have turned the tables on Iran in a way few thought possible. What is more, the strike has exposed the gaping irrelevance of Europe's leading powers, Britain, France, and Germany, in this whole crisis. The E3, which were the main parties to the deal along with the United States and Iran, which have long sought to keep the Iranian nuclear deal alive by undermining the U.S. policy of maximum pressure on Iran, have so far failed to do so. This week, they were finally forced to admit the apparently terminal collapse of the Obama-era nuclear deal, releasing a joint statement to announce that they were triggering its dispute resolution clause. Because of Tehran's failure to abide by the terms of the agreement. The reality of the situation is startling. Europe's attempts to keep the deal alive have achieved little in Tehran because of the continent's powerlessness. And European opposition to Trump's Iran policy has achieved even less in Washington. In an interview, Boris Johnson all but admitted defeat in keeping the nuclear deal alive, calling instead for a new Trump deal. In other words, Trump exposed reality. There was no deal to be had. And as I've written in a couple articles recently at The Federalist, and I'll share them, they were cheating on the deal the whole time. We have documentary evidence of it. But beyond that, we couldn't even have visibility into any of the military sites where likely the nuclear weapon work took place. So, okay. They could argue that they maybe complied with some of the terms of a deal, but we only saw the places that they wanted us to see. Iran wouldn't let internationally recognized inspectors certified under the deal to verify and do actual checks at the sites where their malign activities actually took place, likely take place. So my friend Omri Sarin, who's the National Security Advisor for Senator Ted Cruz, and must read on all things Iran— Tweets out, news out of Iran, the regime is threatening to decrease cooperation on nuclear issues if the Europeans pressure them over their, checks notes, confirms, yep, if the Europeans pressure them over their lack of cooperation on nuclear issues. And that was in response to an article, Iran may review cooperation with IAEA, that's the inspector body, if EU pressure mounts. (laughs) So they didn't abide by the deal. They wouldn't let us check if they were abiding by the deal. And now, now, if we pressure them over lack of cooperation, they might really get angry. There's no deal to be had with Iran at the end of the day. Uh, The only deal, ultimately, is either this monocratic regime stays in power and advances towards nuclear weaponry and, ultimately... We're probably forced to engage in a military response, massive military response. Or, and the Trump's policies, whether by design or as part of a way to get towards forcing a surrender of this regime has destabilized this regime to an unprecedented degree. And while a destabilized regime may lash out, at the same time, Iran has been exposed to have major problems. And the incompetence was on full display. Tragic incompetence was on full display when they shot down a passenger plane and killed dozens of their own people, as well as people from all over the world, from Canada, elsewhere. It's a big deal that Even for the European countries, Iran has breached too many of the steps in the deal, too many of the constraints, the strictures in the deal at this point, that even they can't stand by idly anymore. And by the way, this dispute resolution mechanism that was discussed in that Atlantic article I mentioned, ultimately it could get towards the UN reimposing sanctions on Iran, crippling sanctions, which in a country that is already, they lost Soleimani, They're overstretched abroad, dealing with protesters in all of the different countries that they count as their proxies. Chaos in Iraq, streets of Lebanon on their own streets, having to resort to murdering, persecuting thousands of their own people right now. Their coffers going dry, shut out of the international oil markets, main source of revenue. They could be on the ropes. And worth pointing out one more thing while we're sticking on the Iran topic. This was a good piece, a good reminder. Urge you to check out this article on Powerline, Bernie's history with Iran. Like I said, the left, historically, in our last episode, always stands with these horrible totalitarian regimes. This is in the Daily Beast. On April 1, 1979, this is Powerline quoting that article. April 1, 1979, the theocratic Islamic Republic of Iran was proclaimed. Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who had returned to Iran from exile to assume command of the revolt, became supreme leader in December of that year. His rise was accelerated by the seizure on November 4 of 52 American diplomats and citizens and citizens of other countries at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Then we have the hostage crisis. Virtually all Americans, Democrats, Republicans, and independents united in support of the hostages and the international call for their freedom. One prominent political figure on the 2020 stage, then almost completely unknown, stood apart by joining a Marxist-Leninist party that not only pledged support for the Iranian theocracy, but also justified the hostage-taking by insisting the hostages were all likely CIA agents. Who was that person? It was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders... Member of a Trotskyite party, stood with the Iranian molocracy. By the way, he's not alone in that romance of those sort of regimes. None other than Elizabeth Warren, and this was a this was unveiled previously, revealed previously, but brought up again recently in an article at front page, called on the Obama administration to clear Ethel Rosenberg's record. Who is Ethel Rosenberg? Well, you'll recall, she was tried for treason. Essential in helping the Soviet Union develop nuclear capabilities. The atom bomb, rather. As the article states, she could be the next commander-in-chief. Caught on the Obama administration to formally exonerate Soviet atomic spy Ethel Rosenberg. Sent a letter dated January 10, 2017 on behalf of one of her sons, constituent request that you provide a thorough review of their request that you issue a proclamation exonerating his mother, Ethel Rosenberg, executed by the U.S. for a conspiracy to commit espionage in 1953. Effectively a treasonous act. She wasn't alone, by the way, in the Democratic Party. But that goes to show you the nature of who we're dealing with on the other side right now once again. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Section on The Buck Section Show, back just after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And let's transition. We just talked about a little bit the Middle East, Iran's malevolence, the left's embrace of that those totalitarian regimes, be it Iran or elsewhere around the globe. And there is another similarity in terms of their ideology, And I'll get there by way first of talking about the fact that this week, President Trump is scheduled to be at Davos. What is the main topic at Davos this year? Naturally, climate change. The head of the World Economic Forum, its founder, Klaus Schwab, said, we do not want to reach the tipping point of irreversibility on climate change. We do not want the next generations to inherit a world which becomes ever more hostile hostile, and ever less habitable. Just think of the wildfires in Australia, and we'll get to that in a second. An annual risk survey published by his organization put climate and other environmental threats ahead of risks posed by geopolitical tensions and cyber attacks. It's the first time the survey found the top five long-term risks were all environmental. Talk about groupthink. From extreme weather events to businesses and governments failing to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Part of this is sustainability, the theme at this year's Davos meeting. To deal with grapple with global warming becoming worse because of growing divisions among nations and businesses on how to tackle it. The meetings, which will see over 50 heads of state and government, including German Chancellor Angela Merkel and Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, descend on the Alpine Resort. Seeking to give concrete meaning to stakeholder capitalism, a concept that businesses should serve the interests of all society rather than simply their shareholders. Remember, I talked about woke croning capitalism last week when it came to BlackRock. That's the agenda on the table for all of the leaders, the business heads, the politicians around the world meeting at Davos. And I cannot wait for Trump to <laughs> smash them into smithereens during this meeting over this. 53 heads of state at Davos. 1,700 business leaders, including CEOs from eight of the 10 most valuable companies in the world. 88% of the cars used by the World Economic Forum are electric or hybrid. Climate is the excuse for the totalitarian anti-capitalist system that they all, they're all like-minded. All the globalist leaders there are like-minded on this. Why do they care about the environmental stuff? Because it means power and control. It's a way to use science to justify control over your life. And they will profit, of course, from it because they're the ones in charge of all these green initiatives, invested in the green companies. It's a wealth redistribution scheme to them. In the process, it impoverishes all of us. So I was happy to see on this topic that Bernie Sanders and as well AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, came out and panned the USMCA that the Trump administration just was able to push through in the Senate. Here's Bernie. Not a single damn mention of climate change in his tweets. Seems like a happy guy. And Sanders suggested on the campaign trail that fossil fuel executives are probably criminally liable for climate change. And he's expressed interest in potentially prosecuting them. That's totalitarianism. That's If you have wrong think, you should be shut up. Stifled. So I urge you to read this article from Rupert Darwall in The Hill. And I've interviewed him separately as well. Look it up on YouTube and I can share it as well. Climate religion is fueling Australia's wildfires, getting back to that. And what he shows is that the wildfires in Australia that have been hugely destructive to their environment are largely the consequence of environmentalist policies. It's not because of climate change, quote unquote. It's because they haven't been able to control the brush that has led to these massive wildfires they're not allowing people to burn the brush which would prevent them there from being these massive conflagrations so environmentalism has real consequences it is irrational is what Darwin argues in this article it is a religion but it's a religion that the true believers truly believe in science as infallible and that the science is settled on this issue which is not but it's also a religion that totalitarians use for control over all of us This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, back just after this. Thanks for listening to The Buck
0: Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio
1: app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we were just talking about totalitarianism of one kind, which is the use of Infallible science in furtherance of an anti-capitalist agenda that ultimately is about power and control over you and for the people lording those policies over us and imposing them upon us to our great detriment, impovering, impoverishing us while they benefit. We'll shift to a different kind of creeping sort of totalitarianism, which is an assault on our individual civil liberties under the guise of national security while the bad guys actually... Uh, remain get-off scot-free, and there's no justice. And that concerns the recent Inspector General report on FISA abuses, which comes, of course, in the broader sort of mosaic around Spygate and what we've been dealing with, laboring under for the last three-plus years, and I fear we're going to continue dealing with uh, for many more years to come, unfortunately. So we're going to talk with Senior contributor to The Federalist, a colleague of mine, Margo Cleveland, who spent nearly 25 years as a permanent law clerk for a federal appellate judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and is a former full-time faculty member and current adjunct instructor for the College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. Margo, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much, Ben.
1: So let's start by level setting a little bit. Uh, The IG report on FISA abuse with respect to Carter Page cites 17 significant inaccuracies and omissions in the Bureau's applications for warrants to surveil Carter Page under FISA, uh, starting, I believe, back in 2016. What is the most underreported element of the IG report that you've discovered thus far in parsing it in great depth?
3: So I would say there's actually a tie for two. One is that the IG completely missed that the DOJ FBI had told the FISA court that Steele has this network of sources because he used to work as a spy for the British government. And the reason that is such a huge revelation is, the FISA Court didn't really do much here. They did pretty much a rubber stamp, except for on the first go around. And on the first go around, they presented what they they present a copy to get some feedback. So they presented what they call a read copy to a liaison at the court. The read copy gives them to go a chance to go through and see if there are any issues. And one of the issues that was raised was how does your source Christopher Steele have this network of sources that he was able to get this information from and the response that was given is because he used to work and it's redacted but everyone knows what it is he used to work for MI6 and the liaison the lawyer working for the FISA court told the government to change and put that detail in there. Elsewhere, though, in the IG report is a finding that Steele was not using those sources. None of the sources that he used for his dossier had the connection of being from his Former work with the UK British intelligence that's significant because the court cared about that they asked about it and all the government said was oh yeah he has this network of sources because he used to be an intelligence for you know our British colleagues think about that as a judge you're looking at it and saying well this subsource this, this is gonna be legit because British intelligence relies on the same people But the truth is, no, they don't. They did not, Steele did not use the same sources. So I would say that is one underreported story that should be huge. I think that he should have called that out as an 18th mistake. I think that was significant, maybe even more so than other ones, because the FISA Court specifically asked for it. And then I would say the second mistake or second underreported comment here was that in the IG report, there was this just little passage exchange where it said that Or Bruce Orr, who was one of the DOJ deputy, uh, deputy um, assistant deputy attorney generals, he was the one who was kind of feeding stuff from steel to the FBI. It said that he had called a meeting an interagency meeting and the only reason we know about this is after the meeting one of his colleagues asked or why would we work with this russian oligarch and it was olga and i'm not even sure how to pronounce his name yes thank you so they the the colleague asked after the meeting why would the u.s work with him and or said that the reason why was because there was corruption in the Trump campaign the question was all the way to the president and he said yes so there's a couple of things here that no one's really picked up on was he or called this interagency meeting so who was at this meeting what other agencies were involved and It seems to tie back to Orr's official role, which was in charge of this interagency group. But Orr said, oh, I didn't talk to my bosses about Christopher Steele because it had nothing to do with my real job. So that's one component of it. But two, it looks like Orr was trying to push cutting a deal with the oligarch in order to get Trump because he told his colleague that afterwards the other part of it is, is the timing of this. This came after or had met with um, a couple, I think there were three other folks that were looking at the charges against Paul Manafort. And it had nothing to do with them, yet they were trying to figure out how to get this pushed. And uh, Andrew Wiseman was one of the individuals and one of the things that the IG report said is they were trying to come up with strategies of how to move that case along so one of the questions I have was was this reach out to these other agencies part of this strategy So I have two separate pieces over at the Federalist. They're a couple, uh, maybe a week or so old. There's been so much on the IG report that has gone unreported. But those two really should be blockbusters. And people should be focusing on this. And I hope that Barr and Durham are because those are huge missing components to it.
1: How culpable is the FISA court itself? And I think you have identified them Mm -hmm. as being culpable In some of the abuses with respect to the case of Carter Page, which, of course, then invites the question of how many other cases has the FISA court effectively botched or not held to the Mm -hmm. proper standard uh, that that such important cases should be held to. How culpable is the court and what would be the proper way for their culpability to be remedied or for there to be justice for the FISA court individuals, personnel involved with this themselves?
3: Right. So on the latter point is judges make mistakes. Lawyers who work for judges make mistakes. So there really is no culpability other than that it's a black eye on them. And it should be. But it's unfortunate because it doesn't seem as if they're recognizing that. They're pointing all the fingers at the DOJ and the FBI. And their fingers should be pointed there. The FISA court trusted the lawyers and they should have been able to trust the lawyers. But at the same time, someone should have caught that there was no established reliability for these sub sources. that Steele was the only one who supposedly had reliability. And that's where it's the DOJ and FBI's fault for misrepresenting that. But he cannot... Build up the subsources and the subsubsources. And yet the FISA court allowed what the subsources said happened to be the basis for probable cause. Even though the FISA warrant or FISA applications were clear that neither, um, neither Steele nor His primary subsource had the direct knowledge of this. And that actually ties back to the point I just made about they likely thought that these subsources were ones that fed the the British intelligence information and intelligence. And because of that, assumed that they were reliable and didn't go that next step and say, where in the application does it see that? So there is culpability. I don't think it's nearly as great as the DOJs and the FBI's because they made so many mistakes. But they should learn from this and hopefully look at things more closely. The other part of it that I found in reading the IG report and some of the kind of the text messages that were going back and forth between the parties is it looks like it was a little bit too cozy. They were concerned about how one of the individuals involved in the process would kind of lead the talk to the liaison. So apparently someone from the group that handles the FISA applications talks to the liaison and they were concerned. uh, Peter, Peter Strzok was concerned with how is he going to set it up? Is he going to make it iffy or is he going to make it sound like a done deal, which to me indicates that there's a little bit too much reliance on The DOJ's presentation and that they should be looking at it a little bit more objectively. So I think that, again, it's much more on the DOJ and FBI, but the FISA court definitely has some culpability for it.
1: Looking at the remedies that the FBI proposed when the Fisk pointed the finger, as you said, back at them and said, what will you do basically to ensure that the court isn't misled again in the future? My read of it as a layman and your eyes can easily glaze over looking at the sort of language that's used to explain what the FBI is going to do down the road to reform themselves is that they were basically toothless reforms. Is that a fair assessment?
3: You know, Ben, I'll have to be frank. I have not looked at what they suggested doing. I'm still so buried in what they did in the past. And I also kind of look at it as you're always going to say the nice stuff. It's when the rubber meets the road that I really am going to care about it. And I think that there's the more significant um, change would be that the FISA court requires that you have an amicus, someone who is arguing on behalf of the and, and the person who's going to be tapped. So I really have no idea if it's going to be toothless or not, um, but I, there's there's so much that went wrong, and until we know everything that went wrong, it's hard to say how do you reform it.
1: One more point that I think is worth sure. making is that before this FISA abuse report came out, there was another IG report that didn't get nearly as much focus By the media, which was on confidential human sources, i.e., informants, i.e., spies. Uh, How significant is that report in context of the FISA abuse report?
3: It was so key. And I guess now I'm going to have to say it's a three way tie of what's the most (laughs) underreported story. So the IG report that came out, I want to say two weeks before the Carter Page one, made clear that the FBI was not putting derogatory information in the confidential human source files because it was harming the prosecutors, the U.S. attorney's ability to use them because they would have to turn it over in discovery to the defendants and then it would make them not seem as credible. That should be huge. We're not talking about one guy who accidentally made a mistake or one guy who purposely deleted or changed an email. The IG report made it clear that this was a fairly prevalent um, approach, a very prevalent opinion, that the FBI recognized that they don't want certain things put in these files, which means how in the world can the FBI say that this individual is credible, that there is nothing derogatory when they don't put it in the file? And to me, you read those two things in conjunction. It makes the second report even more damning. But everyone was so focused on what the page report was going to say and looking forward to that, they missed what the what the IG admitted the FBI was doing. So there's so much that has gone unreported. And part of it's just amusing to me that for two years, every little thing that happened that maybe looked like Russia collusion was blown up and just read into so much and reported. The IG report's been out for, what, two, three weeks, and it's old news, and there's so much buried in it.
1: Yeah, and and you've done just an exceptional job reporting on it. I urge all of our listeners and viewers to check out Margot's work at The Federalist. We're going to have to leave it right there, but Margot, thanks so much for coming on the program today.
3: Thanks so much, Ben. It was nice to talk
1: with you. And this is Ben Weingarten for Buck's Exxon on The Buck's Exxon Show. Back with some closing thoughts just after this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And during the break, I was just thinking about what is sort of the unifying theme that ties today together. And that is really one of liberty versus tyranny. The tyranny of an all-powerful government that uses science as an excuse to stifle our rights and profit personally from it, whether it's our adversaries, be they the Chinese Communist Party or the Iranian malocracy and their malign imperialist expansionist efforts, or whether it be our leftists at home, not only in the realm of under climate change, turning us into an anti-capitalist bastion, but as well seeking to divide us as a means of conquering us through poisonous identity politics. And again, what Martin Luther King Jr. argued for was the antithesis of that. It was about freedom, individual liberty, respecting the dignity of the smallest minority, the individual, consistent with what our founders advocated for in those founding documents. And one of these enemies of what unifying Americanism, which is the strongest bulwark against all of this, is Ilhan Omar, and I teased this last week, and I'll reveal the title of my book now, forthcoming next month, is American Ingrit, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. And I'll be talking more about the book in the coming days, but if you subscribe to my newsletter, I'll give you a heads up when it's available. It's bit.ly bhwnews Urge you to subscribe there and you'll be abreast when the book comes out. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen or watch us over the last few days as I've had the privilege to fill in for Buck. I want to thank Buck for giving me the opportunity to fill his big shoes. This has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Give me a follow at B H Weingarden. Look forward to talking next time. Thanks so much.